Hi, I'm Scott, and welcome to Episode 8, Series 2 of Child in Time, Growing Up in the 60s. Welcome back. Now, before we start, I wanted to tell you about something that happened uh, not long after I first started my training. So this was in 1977. I'd been asked to work in a male psychogeriatric unit for the day. Because I knew none of the patients, I sat in the office reading patients' files. While reading one, I noticed towards the back of the file there was a series of old yellowed newspaper clippings. I was startled by what I read. All the cuttings had the said patient's name underlined by pen and his face circled in some group photos. After reading these old cuttings, I said to the staff on the unit, Does this guy talk about this? The staff in the office told me that he'd been on the unit for some time, but he didn't really like to talk about it. Oh. Then one of the staff said, Look, Scott, go and talk to him. He might talk to you. So, a bit later on, I approached this elderly man in his early 80s, sitting alone in a lounge area. Even though he was sitting, I could tell he was a tall man, neatly dressed, with a long face and thinning white hair. I introduced myself, and after we chatted for a bit, I asked him if he would mind talking about that night, and he agreed. He had been a 16-year-old cabin boy on a ship. That ship was the Titanic. He he recounted about getting onto the lifeboat, then being picked up and taken to New York where the survivors were given new clothes and fed well. He was amazed that the sinking of the Titanic was and remains such a big deal, as he put it. By the way, the last survivor of the Titanic, and uh, she was two months old at the time, was a lady called Milvina Dean, and she died at the age of 97 in 2009. Now you might be thinking, well, Scott, what relevance does that time you met someone who was on the Titanic have to this podcast growing up in the 60s? No relevance at all, really. I just like to tell people about it sometimes. Okay, this time we're talking about sport in the early 1960s. Soccer, or football, which most of the world calls it, is the world's most popular team sport and the most popular played outdoor outdoor team sport in Australia. I'll use the words soccer and football interchangeably. They mean the same thing here. But hello to the 25% of my listeners in the USA. I've often driven past a new artificially turfed football pitch near my home. It's a state-of-the-art facility with all the various training aids on display 
under the gaze of a large electronic scoreboard in one corner. Every afternoon and evening there will be junior teams training on the field and every child will be smartly dressed in matching, crisp, colourful training uniform while being tutored by an accredited young coach dressed in similar smart training attire. Oh, how things have changed since I first went to soccer training for the first time as a seven-year-old boy. At my very first training session, each boy was given a full-sized heavy leather soccer ball to kick about. They were like medicine balls, but I loved it anyway. As the season approached, every every team needed a coach and a manager. A time came when a club club official would address the parents of the team and ask the assembled mothers and fathers, well, it was mainly fathers, with something like, Look, we need a coach and a manager for these boys. Now, it's training one afternoon a week and the game Saturday morning. So can any of you blokes help the club out? Silence. The assembled fathers would start to shuffle and fidget like a group of naughty schoolboys being asked to own up to something. Finally, one dad would speak up. Well, if no one else can, I'll I'll give it a go. I played some rugby at school, but I don't know too much about soccer. Thank you, mate. And you are... I'm Peter, but everyone calls me Jumbo. Then another dad's voice. I'll manage if you like. I'm Mel. Thanks, Mel. That was it. Now, let's be very clear. The young dads that volunteered their time and energy were usually patient, energetic and great guys. But they had little, if any, experience in teaching the basic fundamental soccer skills. Now, that was something of a drawback for the small number of us who went on to play at a decent level in our teens and beyond. But anyway, nowadays when I play in my team, I... What? You seem surprised. Yes, I still play. It's called Over 45s. When I tell people that I'm still an active soccer player, I get one of two reactions. The main one, people give me a look of puzzlement. Well, the other is, oh, isn't that cute? They seem to think that it's a bunch of old guys playing and say they're a their opponents. Oh no, my good sir, it's your team's turn to score a goal now. After you. No, it's competitive. Just a bit slower. Okay, it's much, much slower. Anyway, back to 1962. Junior-sized soccer balls and minifields were decades away. We played 11 a side, played on full-size fields. 
and they were enormous for small children. The only concession made was games were 20 minutes each half rather than the 45-minute halves adults play. From our very first game, it was a competition with a league table. Nowadays, all junior games are so-called friendly games until uh, competition kicks in when a child is about 11. Shin guards were not compulsory, but most kids wore them. But the lack of child-sized guards meant that sometimes an under-sevens game looked a bit like Elephantiasis United versus the Colossal Leg Rovers. Such was the size of a child's leg when sheathed in the big heavy 1960s shin pad. Protect your shin? I think my shin pads would have stopped around from a 45 caliber. Watching one of our games, the dew still glistening on the early morning grass after that 8am kickoff, you would see a tiny figure standing, sometimes a little forlornly, in the middle of the huge goal. Even at this tender age, the keeper would realise that unless a shot at goal is hit directly at him, the huge volume of the goal dimensions around his small frame means that the ball will go in for a goal. He just wanted his turn to play in goal to be over. And look over there. You see a child who was placed in position on the field by the coach, say at fullback. He plays his position all right. He does not move from his appointed spot despite exhortations from the sideline to run or to move, this infant traffic cone stands motionless. Another boy. The ball way up the other end of the field bends down and starts examining the grass. He becomes entranced by a caterpillar as the play gets closer, choosing to ignore the distraction of a game occurring around him. His father, watching intently on the sideline, has his hopes for soccer stardom for his son evaporate as quickly as the aforementioned Jew. At half-time, there's cut-up oranges only. There were no sports drinks. After the game, everyone would badger a parent for deliciously unhealthy treats from the canteen at the ground. In the car on the way home, ice cream in hand all being well. I'd tell Dad that I was going to get together with the neighbour's kids and play when I got home. After all, it was still barely 9am. What are you going to play? Dad asked. Soccer. I'd reply. Then moving to summer. During the long, hot summers, every Saturday morning from nine till midday, it was competition cricket. Many of the same kids from your soccer team did the same thing. Unlike the soccer, parents pretty much never attended our cricket games. I don't blame them, really. Not much to see here. 
If your team was batting and you got out quickly, as I often did, you were free to explore surrounding bushland and generally mess about. Some kid's dad would be the team manager, but they also had to umpire the games. It was a very different vibe of the cricket compared to winter sport. Some kids would dominate and be a bowler for no other reason than they could propel a cricket ball down the pitch to the wicket. We played on full-size wickets using a regular cricket ball. We played in white shorts and T-shirts, feet clad in Dunlop volleys. I noticed when a kid was appointed captain of the cricket team, they would often assume a haughty air of superiority, revelling in their authority and enjoying placing their team in fielding positions when we took the field. To be honest, I played cricket while I was waiting for the next soccer season to begin. I didn't dislike it, but it never gave me the thrill of football. For instance, I never got around to learning the fielding positions. When my captain would say something like, Scott, go on field at short, fine leg. I could only just stare at him blankly. He might as well have asked me to recite pi to 50 decimal places than for me to know where short, fine leg was. On the very rare occasion I was given the opportunity to bowl and over, I would motion to various fielders to move in, move in, move in. Further out. No, no, more left. Yes, there. Good. They were back in the place they had started from. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. As I said before, the effects of all those hours on our young, unprotected arms and legs, being exposed to the Australian summer sun, reverberate even now. Just ask my dermatologist. All in all, I was an exceedingly ordinary cricketer, to be perfectly honest. Much later, in my last year of high school, I somehow made the first 11 cricket team. At the beginning of the season, all players had to denote to the first team coach whether they were to be listed as a batsman or a bowler. I put myself down as a fielder. Thanks for listening. Please give me a five-star review so others can find the podcast. Coming up, I've got the Q&A show, second question and answer show. So please send me your questions via childintime, one word, dot live, or via social media links, and I'll answer all the questions time allows. It only remains for me to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Talk soon. Bye.